0: Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture, I'm Robert Bound. From touring with rock bands on buses falling apart to flying with Rihanna on what is known as her 777 social experiment, that was 150 journalists spending seven days watching the star perform seven shows in seven countries, while well, the music press go above and beyond to showcase the stellar imperfections that is the world of popular music. As what we've listened to has evolved, so has how it's been written about. With the rise of digital and social media taking the industry by storm, the worlds of journalists and artists seem to have grown apart some what? Or have fans simply got closer to the musicians that they love? So how did we get to this point? In today's show, we look at the past and present of music journalism and the future of the industry. From Melody Maker to Q Magazine, we look at the height of the music press and the changing dynamics between journalists and artists. Who is the leading force in the industry? What are the current trends? Is music journalism still the gig to get? Or are eager reporters looking to pastures new? But before all that, we had to wonder what it was like being in the fray in the height of music journalism's print decades. Here's Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Miller's musings and gripes with being a former music journalist at Melody Maker.
1: Annoyingly, probably the closest rock journalism ever got to any coat-of-arms friendly encomium of pithy acclaim for its virtues was delivered by Frank Zappa. Rock journalism, quipped Zappa, is people who can't write interviewing people who can't talk for people who can't read. We were far, far too indulgent as a trade of Zappa's interminable self-pleased jazz rock skronking. Seriously, dude enjoyed decades of critical acclaim for making this atrocious racket. And that's the thanks we get. Cram it, Frank. (laughs) Alert listeners will have clocked the we in relation to rock journalists. Your correspondent was one. Indeed, is one, in two divergent respects. One in that I still knock out the odd record review from time to time, though these are now, often as not, reviews of the reissues of the reissues of the reissues of records I can just about remember reviewing the first time. Two, in that you never really stop being a rock journalist. Or, to borrow from a song routinely and rightly derided by me and my kind, you can check out any time you like, but you can never really leave. For better, and doubtless for worse, you never quite grow out of the instincts for irreverence and iconoclasm which underpin the genre at its best. There is a long version of my own rock journalism story, and it may be read in the memoir It's Too Late to Die Young Now, which, appropriately to its anchoring in the indie rock milieu of the early to mid-1990s, remains a stretch short of recouping the advance. Copy still available, is what I'm saying. Excellent Christmas gift for middle-aged uncles. (laughs) The short version is that I began writing about music for a Sydney street paper as a teenage idiot. My job consisted of doing things like interviewing strange Melbourne art punk collective Tism, it's short for This Is Serious Mum, who were having an unlikely chart hit with their double album Great Trucking Songs of the Renaissance, and who would only communicate by fax machine. Then, somehow, as an early 20-something idiot, I lucked into a job at the British Rock Weekly Melody Maker. As a consequence, I got to spend much of my 20s clowning around the world with rock bands and getting paid really quite outstandingly badly for the privilege. Of highlights, there were many. I interviewed almost all the people whose posters I'd pinned up in adolescent bedrooms. I went on tour with, among many others, U2, Pearl Jam and The Cure. The Cure, in particular, were an education in the obvious truth that you don't really grasp until you see it up close, i.e. that the people in these groups are, well, people, and as such, people with dimensions beyond what they distill into their records. I probably thought that after hours time with the cure would involve sipping absinthe and exchanging quips from Rambo and Baudelaire. It turned out to involve, on their tour bus somewhere outside Chicago, rousing drunken choruses of middle of the road's chirpy chirpy Cheap Cheap." You haven't really heard it until you've heard it in the same voice that sang pictures of you. Low lights were almost as plentiful, although the one that can still provoke the occasional 3am lurch from a nightmare is the recollection of trying to prize sufficient quotable copy from The Falls, legendarily cantankerous Marquis e. Smith, who I genuinely feared throughout our encounter, was about to thump me for the transgression of having turned up wearing shorts. Look, it was hot, and I still had the legs for it. But rock journalism was also great training for other kinds of journalism. It taught you to adapt to shifting circumstances, to think and write quickly, and to never take yourself even slightly seriously. Indeed, rock journalism of the time was a kind of hacks equivalent of national service, a chance to develop, to learn, to see the world, and with less chance of getting shot at though that wasn't entirely unheard of. From Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: That was Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, who is still, to this day, trying to escape the angry mob. Well, now we look at the history of the music press and how it's developed and shaped either side of the Atlantic. Paul Gorman is a writer, historian and curator, and his new book, Totally Wired, The Rise and Fall of the Music Press, explores the history of music journalism in Britain and the US. Thanks for coming to the studio. Fresh from finishing Totally Wired, the brilliant chronicle of the rise and fall of the music press, Paul. And brimming with questions, therefore. But I want to cut to sort of I want to sort of cut to the chase. Maybe it's the elephant in the room of the music press on both sides of the Atlantic. And that is this kind of swaggering golden age, perhaps personified by Nick Kent, cooler than Keith, right. as people call them. The people that lived the rock and roll lifestyle and kind of lived hard in the sort of seventies and emulated their, right. their yeah. heroes in yeah. bands. That seems to be that was one of the reasons I loved the music press when I was a kid. And I wonder how how that feels now and writing about it, how you tackled that in the book? Because it's a long shadow, isn't it?
2: It is a long shadow that casts uh, over the story of the music press. And it was one of the reasons I wrote the book was to kind of dismantle that rather than burnish the legend. And I wanted to topple the statue. But people like Nick Kent, great writers, great people, uh, Charles Sean Murray, they came out of the underground press. And so they were kind of alternative to use that much-used word at the time. But it becomes very tainted if you take a long view of it because there is a lot of casual sexism, racism, homophobism. You know, take your choice, you know. And if you read some of those articles, they don't stand up particularly well. And they also disavow the contribution made by those people that are basically put into the corner, you know, women. So my book was really intended to include those guys, and they are all guys, but also broaden the focus to take in people like Penny Valentine, Caroline Kuhn, Carl Gale, who worked for this great magazine, Black Music, which was a monthly, which gave space to the emerging reggae, disco, soul of the 70s which didn't really get much of a space in the pages of The Enemy and Melissa. Yeah
0: and it's a funny thing we kind of I guess uh, when I was a, a young aspiring journalist of a certain age, I thought that it was an inevitability that the music press was ever thus. The uh-huh. music that I particularly liked, certainly at that time, was mostly kind of white dudes with guitars. And the guys, that, the guys that wrote about it sort of looked like them. But it was far from inevitability. As you said with Penny Valentine kind of tr- and Carol Coon, people were women intelligent enough and brilliant enough at their jobs to be able to call it out, but be kind of silenced or sidelined to a certain extent. It didn't always need to be that way, and when, when, when something like Smash Hits came out and Nick Logan's face right. um, in 1980, they seemed to celebrate pop and whatever colour and gender that happened to be rather than this kind of straight down the line rock and roll attitude.
2: Yeah, I, I think the term rockist was actually coined <laughs> in the pages of the NME. Yeah. And they were quite rockist, those people that we're talking about. Nick Logan is an interesting person. He's probably, mm. with Jan Wenner, the most important person in the story of the music press because he was 12 years at the enemy, first starting off as a jobbing reporter, and then he was editor during that so-called golden age. Mm. But then he left there because
0: he was... When he had to to resort to Valium to keep the kids under control. Exactly. I mean, (laughs)
2: poor old Nick. He had a nervous (laughs) breakdown because these guys were really at it. And he was also holding off the advertisers. In 1978, he was kind of post-punk. He was very, very tired, and he wanted to do it for himself. So the first thing he did was go to the printer of the magazine which was a small printer in the Midlands called Emap which became a Beamoth. He went to this small independent printer and came up with a few ideas and the one they went for was what became Smash Hits and it was kind of the anti-enemy. It was mm. printed on good paper so the ink didn't come off in your hands. It had quality photography and it celebrated pop which was then a much degraded and derided form. Mm. And this coincided with that post-punk Rise in pop, you know. Initially, it was the Jam, Blondie, Elvis Costello, and then Adam Ant kind of turns the corner and introduces all of these other acts who became, you know, the mighty people of pop. You know, Human League, I don't know, you know, uh, Duran Duran, Boy George Culture Club. And so, yeah, exactly. And so they then dominate the world. And Throughout this, Nick left after two years, but these two, they were guys who took it over, who were David Hepworth and Mark Ellen, very important people in this story. They had a much more cheery, I suppose, and positive take on music press publishing and much more inclusive. They they didn't mind appealing to 14-year-old girls. Yeah you know they didn't see it as a look, look down patronizing thing to do and so they encouraged participation on the part of the readers and they encouraged their writers to be fun and so among those writers is of course Neil Tennant who ended up as deputy editor of Smash Hits and had he not formed the Pet Shop Boys he would have been editor and that kind of elevated it for me that's one of the golden ages which I think needs to be celebrated more and more.
0: Yeah totally I, I absolutely dig you and and that period in pop music and in pop music publishing was blessed by having, and you mentioned some names there, fantastic, interesting writers and editors in the form of Nick Logan and Neil Tennant, but brilliant pop stars. That was the thing. There was something perhaps the navel-gazing attitude of a certain 60s and 70s legend gave way to fun personality sort of pop stars that didn't mind being asked what their favourite colour was and what their favourite cheese was and what they had for breakfast. Something changed there, the celebration of the kind of minutiae of of even pop stars. Yes,
2: exactly. And David uh, Hepworth and Mark Ellen kind of realised that these were ludicrous people, but they were ludicrous people who could be celebrated. So Mm. I think one of uh, David's master strokes was to employ a cartoonist to come up with um, the story of Phil Oakey the uh, front man of the Human League, who had this uh, asymmetric haircut. I don't know whether that's the right word. The fact was that he had this very long fringe on one side covering his eye and the other side was very short. And so the story of Phil Oakey's upbringing was a cartoon strip of um, his family and even the budgerigar has this haircut. Even the dog has this haircut. And so there's a really cheery kind of Mickey taking approach, which I think fans responded to
0: from that moment on it seemed that the music press is a two-way street that there were there were scenes and genres flourishing opening up being invented or reinvented but also the music press was doing a lot of pulling as well so the music press was inventing a lot of scenes as well what where can you trace that back to is it was it on this side of the atlantic in the united states because it was amazing reading sort of at least the sort of first um quarter of your book or so, the fact that these things kind of were almost invented, spirited into life by well, they were, by the yeah. music press, which but is amazing.
2: By hucksters, entrepreneurs and charlatans yeah. really, like every <laughs> other business in the entertainment industry. Yeah. And so it really starts with the launch on this side of the Atlantic. Of the Melody Maker, as it was called, Mm. by this character Lawrence Wright, who was the first music publisher—not book publisher, but he published songs—to set himself up in Denmark Street in Soho. So So this was just a purveyor of of sheet music, right? Yes, exactly. And that was the format in which music was delivered. Melody Maker, the Melody Maker, is launched to seven thousand subscribers of Lawrence Wright's sheet music business. He is also Horatio Nichols. He publishes his own songs under the guise of Horatio Nichols. And cheekily, in the first issue in January 1926, Horatio Nichols is on the cover. Lo as, and behold. As the world's greatest composer. <laughs> and there are two lyric, two song sheets within that copy of the Melody Maker. And so not for the last time, does somebody within the music press really push themselves. Yeah. I mean yeah. it's always been a self-promoting business as we've seen from the welter of biographies by people who've worked in the music press since then. Yeah. But um <laughs> and so the Melody Maker also struck a chord with those people who were following Dance band music,
0: and it's fascinating stuff because the the kind of the middle section of your book, we kind of come back to it, we leave it, but it's the sort of one of the elephants in the room of the story of the British music press, at least, is the battle royale between Melody Maker and the Enemy, the journalists, the personality. The kind of Melody Maker came out of jazz, it was into Prague in the 70s and folk, and was a defender of that. Right, and the Enemy seemed at times like it was the kind of it was actually a hip young gunslinger. Yeah. Um, Charles Shalmay wrote that job advert for, and sometimes it seemed very square and was in the shadow of its of its sort of older, sort of sister, I suppose. Or I think it enemy. had been. Yeah. What's the who won in the end? I suppose the enemy lasted longer.
2: I think uh, Enemy won in the end. Depends how you calculate one because I think Enemy won in credibility terms. Uh, Melody Maker was seen as stodgy, but nevertheless, it had pages and pages of classified ads at the back where wannabe musicians, you know, advertised for each other. And, you know, several famous bands came out of it. You know, uh, Elton John met um, Bernie Taupin through one of those ads. The Sex Pistols advertised for a guitarist who didn't join in the end. But people use those pages to befriend other people, you know, pre-internet, whatever. And so... Melody Maker was a commercial powerhouse and still the authority on jazz authentic music, I think we call it. Yeah. Jazz, blues and folk. And maybe they were a bit wary of the enemy, which gained this reputation very quickly as a build build them up and knock you down, you know, merchants. More of a tabloid vibe to it. In well a way. yeah, it kind of took its cue from the new journalism of Tom Wolfe. Mm. It was a bit more highfalutin than that, but it also was one of the predictors of punk. It was the magazine, the paper, where you would read about Iggy Pop, then incarcerated in an asylum and dropped by his record label, but because Nick Kent was very keen on him, you could read about him. You read about the early CBGB scene in New York in 74, 75, well before it broke through. And of course, Johnny Rotten sings, I use the NME in Anarchy in the UK. The the Sex Pistols' first single, because Nick Kent, the writer, had practised with the band. And in a way, it was kind of incubated. The punk movement was incubated within the pages of the New Musical Express, which is why it's, if you think that stuff is important, which is why it's significant.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I like it. Well said. You mentioned Tom Wolfe there, and we should... Do a dot dot dot. Meanwhile, in America, um, right. we can't we can't have this discussion without mentioning Jan Vener and Rolling Stone and some of the amazing journalism that came out of that. Yeah. So, what were the essential differences in the American scene and the American publishing scene um, it's, uh, to the to the British one? Uh, well, other the, than the huge scale of the country. Well, there as well.
2: Is, there is that as well, but the the dominant magazines up until. 67 up until Young Wenner launched Rolling Stone, were kind of pop bibles. Mm. And they reflected celebrity film stars and the pop musicians, quite often sappy pop musicians as well. And so the big magazines were uh, magazines such as 16, which was edited by the glorious Gloria Stavers, who was a very important person in this story. She was a really clever person because she was employed by these old geezers who were running this faux pop magazine and they were pretending to be young women, you know, they by- bylines were female, but in fact they had no idea about who they were talking to. She started opening the we- the letters which were arriving in numbers and realised that this could be a reflection of young female desires of all sorts uh, in America. And 16 was kind of reborn, in recast in that way. And so it had its own lingo. Photos were pics, you know, yeah. all of those words that became part of It became
0: shorthand on both sides of the
2: Atlantic. Yes, it, yeah. it did. And so this was the dominant form, really, date book. There were lots of other magazines, Teen Scene, Teen Beat. You know, you get the idea from the titles. And then Jan Wenner visits London in 1967. Visits the offices of Melody Maker. Sees that although this is a very formal paper, it could be a provincial paper, really. It's blokes, bald blokes with their sleeves rolled up, <laughs> yeah. smoking away, hammering away at typewriters on press day. But he sees that in a way he could adopt a formal approach to a countercultural product. And so that's why Rolling Stone has endured, really, because it's got a great and serious take. On an ephemeral form. That was Paul Gorman. Thanks, Paul.
0: Now we look to the future of the music press to see the changes in style of writing with The Guardian's acting music editor Laura Snapes and Day's contributing editor Natty Kasambala. Laura, Natty, lovely to have you both in the studio. Two pros at the top of your game. Like Natty, so. welcome Welcome to the programme, <laughs> your first time first time um, reviewer as well, so thank you very much for coming on. However, I'm going to turn to you first, Laura, seasoned pro of this programme and many <laughs> others. But I wanted to ask you how you got into the music press in the first place and what your kind of preconceptions of it were. Is it felt like a kind of, you know, big house on the hill that you wanted to, to kind of live in or, or what was it?
3: I got into it through reviewing for my local newspaper when I was a teenage in Cornwall, which is obviously incredibly far from any epicenters of music journalism. And the only music journalist I knew was Lee Torela, like the local entertainment editor, Mm -hmm. who was great and like I wouldn't be doing what i do probably without him. The BBC used to do this brilliant youth training journalism thing called Blast and I did that for a summer, which was really good. And I think off that I started making zines and then I got a week's work experience at NME and then it kind of snowballed from there.
0: That's textbook stuff, Laura. So that sounds really (laughs) lovely. And actually, sort of a a kind of crossover from what you might call, you know, traditional, print, you know, st- sticky fingers, inky fingers print to, to yeah, yeah. So sort of the modern iteration of all that is now and all the stuff that you do at The Guardian and the kind of different timelines and everything that you have to feed into with that, I suppose, as well. You kind of straddled both of those sort of generations, I suppose. Definitely, yeah. The, yeah. I started
3: working at NME in 2010 when I was 21 and that was absolutely the transition. We were still in that phase of like, oh, people won't read more than 200 words if you put it online and then put, mm-hmm. you know, then the long form thing kind of comes in. So, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, nice. I mean, Nasty, what about you? I mean, what did you think the music press was going to be like? And as we said in our preface, yeah. how did it start and how's it going, <laughs> I
4: suppose? Um, I think similar to Laura, and I think throughout my career, like most of the jobs that I end up doing are the ones that you're kind of afraid to say that you even want to do in the first place. And then for me, it was a case of like, I think it was literally the prince passed away and I just felt like this overwhelming sense of like needing to express why my viewpoint on why he was so significant was so, like, pressing to the world and everyone needed to read it. And so, like, I set up a WordPress and wrote, like, this piece about my thoughts about Prince. And off the back of that, like, my parents shared it on Facebook and it was all fine. Yeah. And then eventually I found a magazine called Galdem and had just hit them up to say that I thought what they were doing was great, I shared that piece with them, and then that was actually my first kind of gateway into starting to write about music and seeing that as a possibility. And then went on to quit my part time job to do an unpaid internship at Dazed, which was kind of nerve wracking because I'd like hold my breath and like scan myself in on the bus and hope that I could get to work. And then, off the back of Dazed, just started kind of freelancing from there.
0: Okay, so there's two quite different stories about entry into that into that world which to both of you kind of felt a little bit like an edifice Mm -hmm. you know something that needed to be scaled rather than you'd take your exams you do some training you apply for some jobs you'll inevitably get one how much of yourself can you put into your copy into whether it's a, a review is one thing maybe um whether it's a review of whatever but how much of your own personality your own taste Or is it all your own taste? Because there is no right way to write about music, perhaps. It's all subjective stuff. But yeah, Laura, how much snapery is there in the (laughs) copy of Laura Snapes?
3: Oh, I think even when it's not... You know, I try not to write first person unless you you are having an interaction with somebody where you cannot remove yourself from the room and still write about it in a way that actually feels authentic. Mm. But everything is filtered through your perceptions, your values. You know, those values can get challenged in the course of something. But, you know, I can... Obviously, only I would be able to do this and nobody else would care to, but I could look back at pieces that I've written throughout the past like 12 years of doing this properly Mm. and guess pretty effectively where I was at the time based on maybe the sorts of questions that you're asking. Because I suppose when you do an interview as well, and when you're younger, you're often bouncing your ideas about the world off somebody else and see how they respond and validate that or go, no, but what about this? So... Yeah, like one of the stupidest comments that you get online and under uh, underneath reviews and stuff is people being like, "Well, this wasn't an objective review," and it's like reviews aren't objective. Yeah. It's not maths.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. Yeah, silently I mean,
4: exclaiming, <laughs> like uh, vigorously nodding yeah, my head. Yeah, I think that's something that yeah, a lot of people could bear to remember as well, and even reviewers as well, in terms of like you know. Being aware of the fact that everything that they view is, is through their lens rather than something that can be kind of like dubbed object, an objective fact about whether something is good or bad although some things are actually bad. But I think as, as well, I kind of had the reverse problem where I started out definitely coming from that perspective of, like, keep yourself out of it and just tell, like, the story, like, almost overthinking and trying to be the person who can determine whether something is good or, you know, what I think about a person or just presenting them without my own landscape. And then I had to kind of, after I would tried to get more comfortable with writing, I had to learn how to, like value my own experience again and my own perspective and what it can bring to something Mm -hmm. and how it is kind of the thing that makes your profile or your essay different from the next one and
0: and I mean but I mean obviously this also comes off the back of your deep burning desire to to write about Prince and how much you you love the music of Prince which sounded very personal and that's kind of presumably all, all where it comes from right that's the wellspring of the stuff it's like you love the music in the first place
4: exactly exactly I think that's really really
0: key Laura, I'd like to know, um, and I'll turn to you for this, um, about the sort of the the, the metabolism of of, um, music writing in the digital age now. I mean, you came from working on a print weekly, which had a very, very obvious kind of kind of way it worked. And it seems that digital is a lot more sporadic and maybe takes a lot more. Out of writers because you've got to, there are so many times of the day or times of the week when you've got to be filing copy and reacting to things. Is that that how it feels going from print to digital?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think obviously digital really accelerated things where previously you would have your like weekly news dose on the fr- in the front sort of 12 pages of NME. Then suddenly you have the music news industrial complex and especially around the point of like 2012 when somebody like Grimes starts getting really big and she does a lot of kind of controversial things. Pitchwalks start reporting on her in the same way that Perez Hilton used to report on like Britney Spears mm. and that set a tone where then all of their competitors start doing the same because they're all trying to hoover up the same sort of SEO. And I think that has a huge effect on artists and about trust between artists and artists. In the press you know a lot of artists hate doing that and they also became the less inflammatory ones became scared of saying anything because you don't want it to be kind of written up in a headline mm. so I think that's one really really huge change SEO is obviously like a huge driving thing I'll scroll down my RSS sometimes and everybody's doing you know the week before Glastonbury articles on like what is the weather like at Glastonbury and what are blah 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 going to happen at Glastonbury mm. just to kind of get any of that traffic yeah. but at the same time I think that there is a lot of there are a lot of publications who are putting really investing in great long-form pieces and still getting access to great interviews. And I think online is a place where investigations really thrive as well because what what might have been previously hidden in the pages of a magazine that might never have cared to investigate those things in the first place, certainly if we're talking about, you know, sexual harassment and so on, they were not feminist magazines, mm. even when I was working at them. Mm. Those things thrive online in a way that they could not have in the past.
0: Yeah, and well, this is a question, thanks for raising it. I wanted to ask both of you, actually, is this... is Gender and race in in music writing as well. I mean, obviously, the a lot of the a lot of Paul Gorman's book is set in the sort of quote unquote glory days of the sixties, seventies, eighties. Laura's Rolling eyes. you're right, exactly. <laughs> but it seems to have changed for the better. I mean, two female music journalists, and that wouldn't have happened probably in the nineteen seventies, right? And this is this is the thing. So, what do you think about the? the the reputation of that era does it have any kind of is it shadow cast or is it a kind of beacon that you can kind of ironically like or is it tough natty what do you think there weren't people weren't writers of color there were millions of artists of color no writers of color in, in those days either
4: i don't know i think i think i'm a little bit as much as i do agree that there's a lot of progress that has been made i think when you look at like another problem within like the industry is like not having enough resources in Mm. music press and when you look at where the resources are kind of still being targeted or directed a lot of that is still going to older white male writers who are more established or like when I think about who gets kind of staffer positions etc there is still a real disproportionate representation of even people who now have the experience in house to go on to more senior roles who are you know like someone like some of the people who are you know less junior but have never but have like bylines in these established publications but have never had experience in house doing all of these other things that come with being mm. an in house writer so i still think that like there is a really disproportionate issue when it comes to representation in journalism mm. i again i think i'm definitely someone who prefers to look forward then look back and like you say about the kind of glory days like you always have to take it with heaps of salt because (laughs) because it's just like when you look at the state of even the way that the genres that we know are historically like significant like hip-hop and those sorts of things how they've been written about and how they've kind of been presented in history or aren't left necessarily included in the canon all of these things Mm. that affect how we view music history that is also like a, a product of that lack of representation so i don't know about the glory days yeah, I like it. I like it. Well, I, yeah. I'm,
0: thanks for engaging me with the question because I yeah. think it is a thing. It's kind of, it is a bit of a, you know, it's, I don't know if it's a beacon or it's a horror story. You know what I mean? It was a house in the, house in the, it's a horrible little house yeah. in the woods. I don't know what it, it is. It could be
4: both, you know? It could, yeah, be, yeah, yeah. it could be all of it. Yeah, Yeah. And I think often
0: as well,
3: the things that are the most lionised are trash, like the whole era of gonzo journalism. My God, I have edited the copy of so many young men who think they're Hunter S. Thompson and they are frankly not. And like you you wouldn't really want to read that sort of music journalism in the first place. But yeah, I mean, there's so much dross back there. But I also feel like we don't celebrate the people who actually deserved it because there are these primarily like men whose egos have just been like lionised over decades. Yeah. But yeah, I do think that... One thing that, you know, a good 12 years of digital media really thriving has done is if you're under the age of 25, you might never have picked up a copy of NME. Mm. You almost certainly probably haven't seen any of the historic ones. I have because I worked there and we had them all bound together in these big books. And I made off with a digital archive of everything. And, you know, you (laughs) find one in like your dad's attic and stuff. But there's a whole generation who just have zero connection to that or, you know, maybe aren't even aware of those names because they have faded from view. Yeah. But at the same time, as Natalie was saying, a lot of there are still a lot of those figures populating the music press whether it's at broadsheet newspapers or magazines you know i have a lot of love for the heritage music magazines in this country but you know that influence the best of that influence i think thrives in those publications but there are names i won't name who we could do without
0: yeah it's interesting right Mm. yeah yeah finally i wanted to ask you both about if there was a gig or an album or a a musical happening that if you could have reviewed it the first time around and you didn't I'm not just talking about the golden era of stuff, but you know what I mean? If There's something wonderful, t- deeply personal to you, all the stuff of music legend that you wish you'd reviewed the first time around. What would it be, Laura?
3: I would have said Joni Mitchell, but now that she's played live again, I'm like, maybe there's a chance. <laughs> Might happen one day, I'll get yeah. to see her. So I would say Laura Nero, who's this amazing, really undersung songwriter from the 70s, but she continued into the 80s and the 90s, and then sadly she died of ovarian cancer way too young. She was an extraordinary piano player. She had this absolutely unhinged voice. She writes really dramatic but really earthy songs. And I've got some of her live records, but, yeah, I would... Richard Williams, who you mentioned, he's a great fan, and he's seen her live. I've read his live reviews and we've talked about it. I would love to have seen her.
0: Brilliant. So you'd review her one of her gigs? Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks, Laura. Natty. Um, I came to you second because I know you're giving me more time. I can hear the the engine whirring up there.
4: I just, I'm the most (sighs) indecisive person you will ever meet. I'm going to just say, I'm going to say any live session or live session or live gig by Felacousi, I think living through that kind of era of like the politicisation of Afrobeat and all of that would have been unreal. And I just think I'd be interested to know to, like, be immersed in what the press was actually saying and what people were actually saying and who was, I guess, on the right side of history at that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So
0: a live review again.
4: A live review. I think I think yeah. it's got to be. Or in the studio when he's writing yeah. the projects. Nice. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. hallowed turf. Mm. Yeah. Well, thanks both, because we started off with objectivity we ended up with fandom for sorts, <laughs> albeit within the parameters of music journalism. Um, Natty and Laura, thank you both very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for today's show. My thanks to Natty Kazambala and Laura Snapes, Andrew Muller and Paul Gorman. Paul's book, Totally Wired, The Rise and Fall of the Music Press, is published by Thames and Hudson and it's out at the end of September. Monocle on Culture is produced by Steph Chungu and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph also edits the show. Our thanks also go to Thames Howard for researching today's show. We'll be back at the same time next week but until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in.